This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. You may know Dave's name from TV to shows to writing to podcasting to obviously the dozens of restaurants he's opened that he's famous for. Today, we're diving into kind of like what makes Dave tick, what he's passionate about right now, which is a lot of it revolves around fatherhood. So if you don't have kids, I'm sorry. We, we spend a lot of time talking about that, but it's only because that's what he's going through right now. And there's something to learn for everybody. We talk about the early days and what got him started in that kind of just burning desire to do something different. And there's tons of parallels with the journey of athletic brewing and just going against the grain, focusing on innovation, and being obsessed with the details. And there's something here for everyone. And if you want to learn more about Dave's drink of the summer, Ripe Pursuit, it's a lemon-infused Rattler-style brew. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. You can go to athleticbrewing.com. That's a beer that we did with Dave. It's a smooth and zesty and slightly hazy balance of citrus and sweet, exactly the way Dave wanted. So let's go ahead and dive into this story about early days, opening restaurants, almost having a pro golf career, all that stuff, and a lot more right now. All right, folks, you heard a little of Dave's story in the intro. A lot of you probably know him already. Dave Chang, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? How you doing, Mason? Pleasure. Good to be here. Pleasure to meet you as well. We met actually back in uh, 2000, like December 2021 at Palm Springs. There was a little uh, panel yeah. we did. I hosted that. Bombed. But round two today, we're going to talk. Palm Springs was a fun weekend. That was for sure. Can I ask you this? Where are you coming from today, and, wh and where's home for you? Um, I'm now in uh, Los Angeles, and, and that's where our home is. Uh, we moved out here 2020, sort of the peak of the pandemic, and uh, mainly for most of the work I'm doing now is media-oriented because we're finishing up a big deal with, that we had with Hulu. Uh, we still have like four more shows coming out this year, and then um, you know I stepped down from day-to-day -day decisions of uh, Momofuku, and so that was like that was the that was a plan all along. So yeah, you pursued so many different things. You were considered a golf prodigy, won Virginia State title twice. Um, during all this, where where was food? Like where was food in all this? Was that just a part of your life always, or did it slowly bud? No, you know my dad worked in the restaurant industry for thirty years when he came to this country in nineteen sixty three for almost thirty years to make sure that his kids would never work in restaurants. So. Food was never really part of it, even though food was sort of the love language in my family because we didn't really talk so much. But um, we talked about food in, in family gatherings, that's for sure. But I never had some kind of Proustian and Madeleine moment where I was eating uh, an oyster or some kind of blue crab. And like, yes, this is what I was going to do. So, yeah, food was just that was just like, you know, not something I thought it was going to be a career. That's for sure. And something your dad actively told you not to do. Yeah, he wanted me to be a pro golfer. But the irony is, is I didn't do it because it was the typical rebellious son. I'm going to do the thing you're telling me not to do. That that was the that was the funny thing too. 
It almost had zero, zero. No, I, I know why it was because I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> so, so if he would have been like, son, I need you to carry on this restaurant. And you'd have been like, well, you would have been a pro golfer right now. We'd be talking on that end of the spectrum. Yeah, for sure. Going against the grain. That's hilarious. No, I mean, like, yeah, I just burned out at a young age. I never really enjoyed playing golf. And that was my life, 365 days a year playing golf. And I hear you, like, don't play at all anymore. I, I started to pick it up again during the pandemic. So it's the first time in my life that I've played a few rounds for leisure. The one thing that has happened because of my youth golf is it has made me into a psychopath in terms of being competitive. I'm crazy, 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 crazy competitive. And I think that that is uh, something that has definitely spilled over into my restaurant world life for sure. Your, your dad, I know, pushed you. you. You hated golf. I didn't know all this. And, I, and by the way, the commercial we filmed with you last year, you were golfing. So I was like, when I was doing this research, I'm like, that's so funny. You're not, maybe you've been a traumatic experience for you to get back on the golf course. Um, I know you went to cooking school even at, at like 22, and it didn't work then either. What, what happened there? Why do you think it didn't stick that first time? Like, I did all kinds of jobs. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. I think. For me, it was this religious, I I was a religion major. Even going to become a religion major, that was like, people were like, what the hell are you doing? Right. What are you, crazy? You're going to go become a monk or something? I was like, no, I'm not religious at all. I wanted to learn something that interested me. So I think the key thing to get to where I've gone every step of the way has been, I want to do something that at least interests me. I do not want to do the thing that I hate to do. just sitting at a desk for me and doing mindless corporate work, which to me is like, even if I was good at, I would just be in the middle compared to everyone else. So I, I, you know, I taught English. I started cooking school. And because I started late at the age of 22 and I had a corporate desk job, I tried a lot of different things and I fully immersed myself. But for me, it wasn't that I wasn't, some things I was probably good at, some things I wasn't good at. But what I did know is when I started cooking, as hard as it was, it was twofold. I told everybody that I was going to cook. So that actually was the reason why I had to continue to cook. It was too embarrassing to quit. And two, for somebody that was sort of allergic to work, I found that all of the things that I was curious about in life, I could ask in the kitchen. I had mentors. I had, I love team sports. It felt like a sport. All of these things that I love. And I'm physically not that great of a cook. I've become a really good cook because, again, I'm that kind of person. If you put work in time and time in, like day in, day out, I, I can get better. And that's what I love most about cooking. You, you pour yourself into it. You will become great. And that's what I was able to do. I was able to start at a very, very low level and then just pour myself into it and became really good and very knowledgeable about it. Do you think this could have just, like you said, it, it could have been anything that you did, but cooking for some reason seemed to just the right things began to line up to where you continued pursuing it? Well, I have to say that if I started cooking now, I don't think I'd be successful. Right. There's so many good cooks. There's just the different landscapes completely different. What I tried to do at the time, again, in, in the early aughts, cooking, the word foodie didn't exist. There were people weren't taking photos of food on their phones. It wasn't a cool thing. If you said you like food, people thought you were a snob. So it didn't have this cultural zeitgeist thing. So for me, I was doing the polar opposite of what my friends were doing. Most of my friends are bankers and going to business school, et cetera. And that was sort of the, the, the universe that I sort of knew very well. 
but that world was never really merged with cooking. Historically, to become a cook, to really take a road less traveled, historically has always been the kind of people that fill the cooking profession around the world. People that have gotten out of prison, people coming out of the military, people that were gainfully unemployable. And that was me. Except that I didn't go to jail and I didn't serve in the military, but I was gainfully unemployable. There's still time. For a different way of doing something. I wanted something that was meaningful to me, that I could do something that gave me purpose, right? And with your hands and, you know, there's a lot of things I feel like I would want my sons to be able to know. Like maybe they don't have to go to college if they want to become a great brewer themselves. You know what I mean? Like one of my close friends who's German, his cousin dropped out of school when he was 15 because he wanted to become a brewer. I was like, that's amazing. I feel like in America that gets discouraged to some degree, right? When, when you're supposed to follow a path that makes you, especially as an Asian American, doctor, lawyer, engineer <laughs> straight from that path they're like what what are you doing who knows i could have done anything you give this vibe that it's almost accidental not accidental but like you still seem very surprised by your fame and surprised by the following surprised by the people who are interested yeah i mean people think that it's like oh uh, i'm just uh, it's real like it doesn't make sense in a lot of ways, right? No, it doesn't make sense why it's all happened the way it has. It never does. And it's better for me not to think about it. Well, let, let me ask you this, because you took a pretty big risk when you started your first restaurant. You had to borrow money from your dad. You There wasn't a game plan in the sense of like, you didn't have a guidebook or, or anything. You'd never done this. Was it really just the desire to be different from your friends and to be a little rebellious against your dad? What Was that really the base, like, it or was there something more there to it i think it was a little bit of everything it was a lot of anger all right um as the, to the food that i felt was great but also misunderstood uh filling a marketplace right same thing with athletic brew uh, you know trying to create a the best in class non-alcoholic beer there's a purpose right and, and i think uh, for me my purpose was many, many things, but I think a lot of it was introducing people to a kind of food that people didn't know that much about that is delicious around the world and also making food of value uh, with great ingredients. And also it was like a discovery for me. And the reason I did it was there was a couple things that I realized life is extremely short. What made you realize that? September 11th had happened. This was 2004 when I opened up. And if you weren't in New York city, I was downtown it was a, a day I'll never forget, a week I'll never forget. I, I still think about that smell. It's a smell that I, I think about quite a bit. In this three years from September 11th on, I had three close friends that died, right? It was a lot of like, whatever you think is important is really not that important. Whatever you think is going to be the, a big decision, it's really not that big of a decision. And for me, it was if I fail, it was cheaper than trying to go to a graduate school program. I, no, and, and I was, again, I was comfortable with declaring bankruptcy. I mean, I was all in. Why do you think you were so comfortable with just these things that people, I mean, would consider like a prison sentence? Why are you so comfortable with that level of risk? Well, because I think I, I, I've thought about that a lot, and I don't expect everyone to think that way, but what what kind of life is in a prison sentence? <laughs> that That's that religion major coming in play right there. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, it's all relative, but at some point, it's like, what is the meaning? What are you doing, right? Like, you have to have some kind of purpose, but 
You know, it's all relative too. I wanted to legitimately change how people thought about food. So would you like cook a meal and watch them eat it and say, yeah, watch that change on their face happen as they ate it. And that was the payoff. No, it was, I wanted to see something that I saw that happen in the rest of the world. Again, what, what I was able to learn from religion was like seeing how things work in other pockets of culture, right. To, to, to critically think things through. And so like there, if a food's delicious and I know it's delicious and there's empirical evidence as to why it's delicious, but it's not delicious currently. I'll give you an example. Growing up, have you tried those seaweed squares called keem? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, in the early 80s, you would have been beaten up if you got out at lunch, at least in Virginia, and you've been called terrible names. The funny thing is, though, the same kids that made fun of me are now packing that in their kids' lunches. Now, the question you have to ask is, did all of a sudden, did it get more delicious? Well, that could be possible. Manufacturing could improve, quality ingredients could improve, but I'd argue no. So what changed? Did it get better? Maybe. Or did something else change? And for me, I looked at a whole host of things in food that were not fair or not right. There was too much emphasis on decor and service. I was a cook. I was like, it's food first for me. I don't care about anything else. And secondly, a lot of the things that I grew up eating, I, I know globally are delicious, tend to be marginalized in America. And it's no different than when, say, somebody, I'll never forget, like, I grew up in Virginia, my first band that I loved was the Allman Brothers. I'll never forget. I didn't like rap music. You know why? Because Greg Allman said, that's not music. And I'm like, now I think, well, that was stupid of him. Why would he say that? Oh, because he, he doesn't understand it. And he's scared. And it's different from what he did, which was Southern Rock. Love it. But to sort of say something else that is not good or not music, well, clearly it's the music of choice right now, and it has been for 30-plus years, right? And you see these moments in culture, for me, where it's like the underground becomes overground, right? It always happens. And I thought, well, that had never happened in food. You never had a times of plenty. When... There's food shortages. Yes, revolutions happen, probably because of this food shortage. But in times of plenty, there's never been a cultural food revolution where people change how they think. That was like a big thought that I had, and I wanted to be part of that. I mean, it sounds self-important now to say that, and I don't want to sound like a jackass talking about it, but that was like this sort of the stuff that ran through my head. And so what that led is some really – interesting just philosophies on your own restaurants which was like yeah it wasn't about design or service in fact that was like an afterthought which seemed to be what a lot of people to this day focus on um but you knew for a fact the, the food itself would move people no i didn't we didn't know what the hell we were doing we almost went out of business again going out of business many times causes you to re reassess all right i've had cancer affect many people in my life and it's like when you are given a terminal diagnosis the cruel irony is that's when they start to really live life. Hmm. And, you know, I was like, wait, physically, we're not going to die. But I'm like, as a company, we've started, we've raised money. And when the accountant says, you're going to run out of money in two weeks, guess what? All of a sudden, those bad ideas, all of a sudden, aren't bad ideas. So really, what we're trying to do is test out what is actually a bad idea. Is it really a bad idea or is it a bad idea because some dumbie said it was a bad idea and it's really hidden treasure buried in a bunch of crap and we got to polish that and now we can like share that treasure. And 
we started throwing anything and everything against the wall. We, tried, we started to question the whole model of going to a restaurant. This whole idea that the customer was always right, wrong. That's stupid. Who said that? At some point, the customer's wrong. That's just going to be the truth. And I think it's disrespectful to the service staff and the cooks to just lay down when a customer's being an a-hole. You know? So I'm like, no. I, we're a 600-square-foot restaurant. We don't have, we didn't have the capacity to make vegetarian food. It's not that I don't want to, but we're 600 square feet. Like, we can't account, we live in New York City. There's more restaurants here than any other. I'm sorry, if we're bigger, now we have bigger restaurants, we can serve vegetarians, no problem. But we took a very antagonistic stance. We don't serve any vegans or vegetarians. People would not do that. Like, (laughs) everything that you weren't supposed to do. And we didn't know if it was a good idea or a bad idea, but we tried it. And it's a, a, a philosophy in America called American pragmatism. When, you know, again, this is stuff that I studied for such a poor student, these things were very, very important to me. What is most truthful is what is most useful for you at that time, because truth changes. And you can't do that until you back that up with empirical evidence and data. So we tried everything out and we saw, we would see something, we would make a recipe, we'd I remember like we put pozole on the menu. It's not something we did, but you know, the story and how I won't bore you with why it made sense to us because we had a Mexican American co-founder. It's like, all right, let's serve it. Okay. People like that, but can we make it better? So you see the response, you talk to the customer and you tweak it and you make it better and better and better. So you do that all the time in every facet of your business. And I think it increases your chances of not just survival, but changing the way you think about doing anything. Do you have any stories of those early days of maybe helping customers shift that thinking around, you know, the customer's always right? Or some of those just tropes of owning a restaurant? I mean, summarize it as this. If you're going to open up a restaurant, and I tell this to a lot of people, like, Something you got to be a little off, right? You're about to enter the hardest job you've ever done in your life. Everything that will go against you will, and everything that can go wrong will happen. So I always say, like, if you're going to open a restaurant, throw a dinner party for your friends and family and all the investors, and then tell them it's bring their checks and it's going to be a check signing party. And you make the dinner, you get a big pot, and you burn all the checks in that pot. And you say, that's that's what's going to happen literally to the money you're going to give me to start this restaurant. You are going to hire, the percentage chance is like 99% failure rate within five years. Think about that. It's terrifying. It's, it's, it's terrifying. There's a reason why banks won't give loans to restaurants because it's a guarantee they're not going to be in business almost. It's just like, you don't bet against an actuary. So it's like, okay, the person that has a higher probability of success is somebody that's like, if that's what I need to do to become successful, to accomplish my vision, my goals, because I have to do it. It is not just a calling, I have to do it. They have a higher chance of success. So it's like, you gotta be a little crazy. It has to be the only thing you can do. And I think if you're gonna do that, you gotta know that like, if you're going to go out of business, then imitation is suicide. Like, why are you gonna do it like anyone else? Why do you keep doing this to yourself then? Because I can always make it better. And I'm an addict. I'm an addict to the thrill of opening restaurants. It's something that I'm unfortunately extremely, I think I won't say I'm good at a lot of things. I'm unfortunately extremely good at 
building a concept out and opening up a restaurant as terrible as it is. So like, I would say anybody that's thinking about doing it to like go in with a mindset that you already lost everything. (laughs) That's, that's, and that's, there's a certain level of uh, almost a sense of freedom in that. Yeah. Why are you playing it safe when you're going to go out of business anyway? You're just prolonging the inevitable. (laughs) Were you thinking this way early on, like in your twenties? Before you no. were doing all this, or did you kind of awaken this beast within you? Yeah, awaken it up because it was survival. Every day was anger and rage because it was so hard. And then you go to bed. Like, going to bed angry is a crazy thing to be able to do. And waking up angry is a crazy thing to be able to do. And that anger is like renewable energy to, like, get you through the day. When you're working <laughs> seven days a week, you know, 18, 19, 20 hours a day, it's a lot. It's not a lot. It is all consuming. So it's, it's like, you know, it's not something I, I love and I think I've grown up a lot and I'm not that kind of person, but I'm talking about the people thinking about opening up their first restaurant. I'm not talking about people that are successful, right, at it. It's still hard for people that are successful at it. It's such a hard business and um, I love it. And I, I love that feeling of success. I love being able to put people in positions of success. I love it when the team wins, That's the best feeling in the world when everything is stacked against you and you're able to get that good review. You're able to pay people the salaries that they need to get paid. Everything is awesome when you can do it and everything works. It's terrible when it doesn't. But like I see too many first-time restaurant owners being extremely conservative. The only time you can be extremely conservative is if you happen to be a master at your craft. You are one of the top sushi makers in the world. You're one of the top pizza makers in the world. You're one of the best chocolatiers in the world. When you are at the highest level of execution, then yes, play it as safe as you can because your excellence is what's going to transcend everything else. But for a lot of other people, that's not the case. Did you sound like you were in war for years? Yeah. This is insane. Would you do it again? You know... I will tell you right now, if it didn't happen, I wouldn't have my wife and my family. I wouldn't have the people, all these things. But I, I, I think the for way, best way I can describe it is I was able to do it then because I was full of myself and my own ego. I also had no responsibilities other than myself. And I was extremely selfish. And I tell a lot of people when they're younger, and this has nothing to do with age per se. I'm saying like, When I say younger, let me translate that to responsibilities. Are you responsible to a family? Do you have to take care of an ailing grandmother? Things that are outside yourself. If you are a normal person, when I say normal, well-adjusted person, you will be good enough to be selfless to help those that need it. If you happen to be in a rare, fortunate circumstance like I was, where I had great education, all these things, and you know, I came from an upper-middle-class family. When you have all those things, and like, you have a winning lotto ticket. Don't, what are you doing? Why are you going to, why are you going to be conservative? And if you have, if you are unencumbered, then that's your opportunity to be selfish because you will never have the opportunity to be selfish again. Because if you do find a part, you do have kids, you will spend that time being that version of that. And I think it's a small window where you can be incredibly selfish So I was, for that period, 
extremely selfish. And I'll tell you, in retrospect, I didn't think I was selfish. I thought I was selfless. Creating all these opportunities for others, kind of redirecting the attention. With a lot of therapy and a lot of executive coaching, I learned retrospect. I was extremely selfish. Yeah. I think that stage of life is 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 the time that it's the least damaging to be that way, you know, because thank God you're not doing that now with kids and the family and, and, and still stuck in that without being able to change. But let's talk about that. You know, you, you've had the ability to raise raising kids now. I think I know the answer, but which is harder, kids or restaurant? Because I know going into parenthood, you didn't know yet. You didn't know. But opening a restaurant, raising kids. I will still say opening a restaurant is the hardest thing anyone can do. Raising a kid is hard because it's, you know, it's funny. It's the best thing in the world, as you know, and it's so difficult. And I'm exhausted in different ways, but I'm also older. And I don't know. I don't know what it would have been like. You know, I had my, you know, my wife and I had our first child when I was 42. If I was 22, I don't know. You know, I have no idea. But they're both difficult. And I know we want to make comparisons. Um, for me, it was more, more difficult to open up a restaurant. But like maybe it's less difficult because I have the support of my wife. All those things. I don't know, but it's still hard. But I will tell you the difference is when I was opening up that restaurant for many years, I would say I'm, I legitimately believe I'm willing to die for my restaurant. Every day I went so hard that it was like I may not wake up tomorrow. So today I'm going to go ham. And when you do that for so long, you know, like it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like I'm living this life so I can say this. Now I look back on that and I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I could have ever have said or thought. I would say my most important thing is work in restaurants and the employees and, and what we're trying to accomplish. Those goals are still there, but they're not as important as my family. Not nearly as important now. And I can't really compare them. All I can tell you is that's how I feel now. So I, I, I think your, your children will hear stories about you one day and like, wow, that's my dad. I, I know with my dad, the stories I hear now about dad, it's like, Dang, dad, that's crazy. I'm, but I'm so glad you're the version of yourself now. That that raised me. But the stories are fun to listen to, and it's wild, and I can't even believe it's the same person. I, I think your kids are probably in for, for similar. Wow, that was you, dad? That's crazy. That's a beautiful story, you know? And, and yeah, I feel the same way. It's like, I love work, and I love restaurant. I'm so proud of the good things, and the whole host of people that have made that happen along the way, and, you know, really gotten learned a lot, taking my lumps, but I can't love it as much as my children. You know what I mean? Like to love something more than yourself, to truly do that, that's a, that's a wholly different feeling. So, yeah. What, what, you know, you've had so much success and just not, you're not one dimensional, like a lot of, you know, people that get really good at something. Uh, you've had success. I mean, you're a great podcaster. Your podcast is huge. Um, in print films and documentaries and all that. I mean, you've had like so much go really well. Does that feel that way to you? Are, are there any kind of things that crashed and burn? I'm sure there's tons, but like, it, it just seems like everything you touch does really well. So I'm a avid fly fisherman with saltwater. All right. I like catching permit. I couldn't tell you, I can barely remember the great permit I've caught in my life, but I can tell you all the ones that I, and it burns me. I don't really remember the good things and that's a fault of mine that I don't really, I'm not present for the good times because I'm always uh, focused on what went wrong and how to be better. And I'm so competitive that 
all of the things that you say and that are good, part of me understands, right? Like I, I was talking to a Navy SEAL on my podcast and I said, how do you do what you do in service when you're actually in action and still be loving and still be this normal person, not this warrior? And he's like, it's like a computer screen. I just minimize that window and I maximize the other window full screen. And I was like, that's the way I, I, I was like, I was like, whoa, that's, a, that's an amazing way of looking at it. And that's how I tend to think. I know part of me thinks about all the things that have happened that are good, but that's always minimized. And I genuinely have convinced myself like a neurosis that none of it is real, none of it is true. And it's all in the past if it did happen at all. And it's like on to the next, on to the next, on to the next thing. And I gotta say, it's it's a it's a defense mechanism for sure it's extremely taxing to think that way <laughs> and it's oftentimes not fun for people around me you know like when i see bill belichick on the new england patriots be this curmudgeonly person like i remember watching one super bowl he's like he won and he's like uh, we got to focus on focus on next year focus on next year <laughs> i tend to be that kind of philosophy you're like i know exactly what yeah. But I, I've also heard you say, too, like in a convincing speech, talking to, you know, people that are about to enter that really selfish phase of life that you said. But you say you, yes, this is your time to be selfish, but you've also learned that you're, you're happiest when you are being selfless. And so when you're telling these, you know, college students are getting ready to graduate, you're like, yes, enter this phase full force. But I've learned I'm the happiest when I'm the most selfless. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I've learned is um, one of my close friends said, both of those ways of living and working are fuel, right? Burn dirty or you can burn clean. And I think trying to live in a, a selfless life where you're not putting yourself at the center of the universe sides on like burning clean, right? And it's a much more rewarding way, in my opinion, much more like clean energy is a very rewarding way of sort of living in the world today than sort of burning dirty. It's highly effective, works extremely well, but comes at a cost. So here's the problem. Burning dirty is way easier. You got to put a lot of work. It's hard. And I'll tell you, I can imagine someone listening if they're in this position of like, and I felt this way too. And it would be nice to be able to like, recalibrate how I think if I just had the time, if I had the moment, if I had the money, if I had this, this, and this, it's, it's not easy to find the chance to be able to do that. Right. And I don't have an answer, but all I can say is you got to keep on, you may not find that you're at that moment until way, way later down the road. You can't connect the dots till after the fact. It's almost like trust the process, right? You got to trust the process. Give me a lot to think about, and I have no <laughs> desire to open up a restaurant. I mean, if you got some time, I got a couple rapid fire questions. Sure, I'd love to to just get your thoughts on. Doesn't have to be one word, just a sentence or two. But what would you say your proudest achievement is outside of all your restaurants and all the media you've done that's done so well? What What would you say you're most proud of? Oh man, yeah, small small questions there. <laughs> I I can tell you right now that I think I've been a really good dad. Which you didn't think you were going to be. No. And I think like, a, you know, I, I have a real relationship with my kids and um, I didn't think that was going to happen. I, 
and I made a lot of changes for that. You know, I used to be on the road 150 days a year. Um, I stepped down from day-to-day decision-making because I could one of these do media so I could spend more time at home and et cetera, et cetera. So I think I, I'm really proud of that because, you know, I get asked this question a lot. What do you want your legacy to be? I, I, I don't mean to seem, sound like a jerk, but who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter. What matters are the people that are going to live after you within your world, right? Like your family, your, your friends. And the best thing you can do is sort of like be the best version of yourself, improve. So they, again, increase their probability to be more successful so they don't make the same mistakes. One of the, just share this, I can cut this, but when I was watching Ugly Delicious, you, pre-kids, you, that episode, uh, what is it, Baby Meals or Kids Menu? Kids and uh, one of the things I was like, I know exactly what he means, is when you told your family you were having a baby, you were kind of overwhelmed with how happy that made them. That was our, my feeling. I was blown away by how, it's almost like made me happy how excited but i had no idea i did not expect that at all because i was so apprehensive and it was like it makes all these people i love so happy i'm actually excited now like sometimes that's what i'm working towards with with our kids is like i know this makes the people i love around me so happy and uh i just and i love that moment that was really cool well i appreciate it yeah it's it's almost like you know it's one of those besides the birth you know, uh, telling people that, especially your parents or someone that's in your family that you're expecting, is one of the most pure moments that is not scripted. You know, it's pure joy. You know, for me it was. It was for, I can't speak on really on behalf of anyone else, but it sounds like for you too. It's you're not prepared for that unconditional love response, and you're like, wow, like you. It's not like you've done anything really truly important, but it feels like you're giving hope to them. Yeah. I was like, cause I, I, they were more excited than I was, you know? And I was like scared and afraid. <laughs> I wasn't excited at all. I was like, Oh, sh-. it took, it took a while for that to set in and to be excited about it. But for them, it was just like this instant moment. I just, I was watching it recently getting ready for this. And I thought that's really cool. What, what would you say? Sure. You get asked this a lot. What, what would you say the biggest goal you haven't yet achieved is yet? retire early <laughs> i don't know i mean i still want to be able to build a company that does it the right way and get and like provides for everybody's needs right and i know a lot of people look at us um as sometimes like how to do it and what to do it um so that's always a lot of pressure but um we're still not there yet you know these days as you're building this, what, what is like a go-to meal for you these days? What's something you really enjoy eating or making? Anything at home that I don't cook. Anything. Anything. <laughs> All right. So this is like more of a tip, but what's like the fastest, simplest way for the average person to just up their game in the kitchen? Could be a item, could be a meal, could be a process. What's like start doing this it's, it's again this is the least uh, sexy thing to talk about but it's mise en place and it's a french term for everything in its place most people aren't good enough to just cook off the cuff and most people are extremely poorly planned when they try to cook something i think that if you try to visualize and plan out accordingly from the ingredients to the situational awareness like 
sports or where everything is and you plot it out and you get it like meticulous again I, i've used this phrase a bunch it will increase your success rate and i also tell you don't follow a recipe if you always follow the recipe you're never going to develop a skill that you should probably have which is how to cook with intuition and if you've continue to make mistakes with your food over and over and over again, you're going to get better at it. You just have to, again, persist and get there. All right. Everybody wants to do it without putting the work, put in the work. You know, on every can of beer at athletic Bruin, it says live without compromise. What does it mean to you to live without compromise? I think living without compromise is literally in your waking in your last moments when you're thinking about it, what the hell happened? You don't have any regrets. Or they should be less than one on one hand. You can learn more about Dave at his podcast, The Dave Chang Show, any of the shows he's been on, his books, other podcasts he's been interviewed on, and a lot more. If you want to check out Ripe Pursuit, Dave's Beer of the Summer, go to athleticbrewing.com or look at the show notes for a link that takes you right to the beer. You can also find all our other selections there too, as well as our store finder to find us on store shelves near you. 